Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Abraham Lincoln Radio Studio at the George Washington Broadcast Center. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. What an amazing career Brady played for 23 seasons. Yeah, he was around for, yeah, amazing. He was around for a long time. Let's just say Brady was the only active NFL player to see Top Gun 1 and 2 in theaters. Yep, Brady is done, and in a related story, uh, tickets to next year's Buccaneers games are now free. I just saw. Oh, wait a minute. That's a proud franchise with a history of something. I just saw a thing. It's <laughs> it's a um, it's a uh, all of Tom Brady's beginning of the year photos for the NFL. Oh wow! Uh, going back for when he's like twenty three years old up until he's forty six years old. He looks better at 46 than he did at 23. I know, it's who, disgusting. Who can do that? I mean, you, yeah. well, all of us could, actually, if we wanted to make it our life's dedication to working out and eating right. We probably would, too. But he's kind of a round-faced, doughy-ish, good-looking guy when he is in his 20s, and he gets more angular and harder and tanner and just, just overall better looking as he gets older. Who's Chiseled dress shirt model now. Who's better looking at 46 than 26? Well, Tom Brady, that too. That's disgusting. <laughs> it really is. That's enough to hate him right there. So in a few minutes, we'll get onto this. There are a range of ideas in the public consciousness these days, from the incredibly wise and uh, and valuable to the okay to the probably not good, etc. And then there's that final tier of ideas that are so moronic, it's difficult to picture an adult repeating them as if they're true. And in that pen of just utterly moronic ideas is the idea that, Policing just exists because of the fugitive slave laws. Police 
departments started to catch slaves. It's systemic racism. That is utterly idiotic. I will explain. Cool. I look forward to that. Uh, speaking of Tom Brady, he is uh, he famously signed a broadcasting deal when he retired the first time. That went back to work. And so they had to put his broadcasting deal on hold. He is going to uh, work for Fox. And it, nobody knows the numbers for sure, but it's estimated to be, what have you heard, 385? or It's crazy numbers. Yeah, it's a few hundred million dollars. Many hundreds of millions of dollars, yeah, that he's going to work I'll for Fox. I'll do it for half of that. Huh? Well, I heard today that he's not just going to be like in the booth saying, I think the quarterback's going to throw deep on this play. He's actually going to be like part of the whole marketing and sales and all kinds of different stuff for Fox. So he'll play a giant role in uh, like trying, you know, you know, uh, to, to woo General Motors to spend more money on the games and that sort of stuff. He'll but be the the face of Fox Sports. Yeah, he'll show, you know, you're going to get the top people at GM to show up. Say, yeah, and Tom Brady will be there yeah. at the meeting. So indeed, that's that's what he's getting paid the big bucks for. Uh, a couple of notes about what's going on with the war in uh, Ukraine. Um, before we get to what I think is going to be a growing political division over the whole thing. Russian troop buildup signaling a new assault, Ukraine says. Russia is now massing hundreds of thousands of troops in a what looks to be a campaign that will rival the start of the war. Do you remember at the very beginning of the war when they had the half million troops lined up and everybody was talking about Kiev falling in a day and all that sort of stuff, and holy cow, this is going to rival that. It's like, let's try this again. Wow. Well, yeah. if they have a 20-mile-long traffic jam this time, it's going to get the S-bombed out of it. Hundreds of thousands of troops that he's lining up. He's called up, Putin called up another 300,000 over the last couple of weeks. So he's willing to throw lots of people at this uh, problem. Another story that fits into the growing political rift, I think. New York Times with a piece on what no on F-16 fighter jets might mean for Ukraine. So Zelensky, president of Ukraine, has asked for F-16 fighter jets. So he has a chance to stop the horrifying, deadly shelling that's going on. Uh, The Biden administration has said no. Well, the New York Times walks us through. Well, the sub headline is if the usual script plays out, the Biden administration's reluctance to provide the planes will be temporary. Um, And they go through how this has been the dance since this whole thing started on everything from like handguns and ammunition all the way up to Abrams tanks most recently where you say, nope, no, absolutely. That'd be a line we are not going to cross. And then Europe makes some uh, claims or adjustments or uh, they come up with a strategy. And then eventually we say maybe one, maybe two, maybe 50. And, uh, and, And we say, yes, that's that's the way it's worked every single time so far. And the other day was just a great example of what you've been saying. I call it the Jack Armstrong principle that the day it was either the day of or the day after that the U.S. announced, yeah, we'll send a handful of Abrams tanks. Uh, Zelensky was screaming, we need F-16s. We need F-16s. And I was like, there will be no F-16s. That would be escalatory. We are going to proceed very carefully. No fighter planes for you. And so the conversation was suddenly about that instead of the tanks. Right. So every time, and, and when we deliver the F-16s, Zelensky's probably going to say, where are our nuclear warheads? we got to have nuclear warheads. <laughs> right. And so everybody's like, yeah, never mind the F-16s. Let's talk about nuclear warheads. It's a pretty good strategy. 
As far as the rift within the Republican Party, it's currently about 50-50 support for the effort in Ukraine. Actually, nationally for everyone, it's about 50-50. It's down in the 40s for Republicans uh, supporting this. And Tucker Carlson, who I don't know how much sway he has on voters, but I, from everything I read, he has some sway within the halls of Congress among Republicans. They, they feel like their constituents are paying some attention to what Tucker Carlson has to say. He is hardcore. We shouldn't be supporting Ukraine in this war for all kinds of different reasons. And he went huge last night on saying Trump is the only candidate out there. He's the only guy running for a office that wants to end this march toward World War III. And then he started dividing out other uh, politicians that have been supporting Trump but support the war also, using the example of Lindsey Graham. Lindsey Graham was at the big... Trump um, uh, get together the other day and talked about how Trump is leading us that way and that way and we need Trump's policies and all that sort of stuff but Tucker Carlson making the argument that Lindsey Graham is one of the leading voices on we need to give everything to Ukraine and Trump is absolutely no so what gives and so that's the 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 the, the Tucker view of things and trying to lead people that direction well in the Wall Street Journal today JD Vance got an opinion piece into the Wall Street Journal today, Trump's best foreign policy, not starting any wars. And he has my support in 2024 because I know he won't recklessly send Americans to fight overseas. So J.D. Vance, a sitting U.S. Republican senator, is out endorsing Trump already for his candidacy for president over um, Trump thinking we shouldn't be involved in Ukraine. I think that is going to become a giant political story. And you might have Trump on the debate stage as the only voice up there saying no more money and weapons for Ukraine. We did. We have porous board. This I don't think this argument makes any sense, but I see it on Twitter all the time. We're sending tanks to Ukraine. How about we send tanks to our border? That's a uh, Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene and their, their Twitter feeds are all about that. Trump's going to be saying that on the stage and he's going to have about 30 to 40 percent of primary voters who agree with him on that, I think. Hmm. And how, how does he lose? How does he not end up the nominee? If he's the lone voice saying we need to end this and you got 40% of the Republican Party that says, well, yeah, we need to, to stop providing Ukraine all this support. Well, I suspect other candidates would, uh, would start to work that ground, at least uh, express skepticism or desire to look into it or be careful about it you know they try to dilute that distinction that's the way politics works uh i still i still find it hard to believe trump's gonna run at age 79 or whatever it is but um but i don't know i i realize he's i realize he is running he is a declared candidate but uh whether he means it or not or how far he's gonna take this i don't know these these are weird weird times but you know how opinion can change on these wars so fast. Um, yeah. Well, and the most dangerous thing is no counterbalancing opinion to the gung ho crowd, which is includes you, sir. I am. Uh, the, I am the gung ho crowd. I think it is a mistake to uh, not let Russia and other countries know you don't get to just take land because you want to in the modern world. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I have no problem with there being breaks on that impulse. People saying, Hey, let's be careful. Is this really what we want to do? L- what's this regime we're supporting? What's the, what's the nature of it? 
Um, That's not what J.D. Vance is talking about, though. Right. Oh, yeah. It's a, as our own Mike Lyons, who we really, really like. It's a regional conflict. We don't have interest in that. That yeah. that I, I I don't know I just I could really see by summertime if the numbers keep going the direction they're going the candidate on stage if he's the only candidate on stage saying no enough we got our own problems we got our own problems we got schools we got you know the border we got you know name your problem we got fentanyl name your problem we're sending billions of dollars to Ukraine and he easily has like forty percent of the party on his side and all yeah. the rest split among eight other candidates could happen. God dang it. Um, it's going to be interesting to watch play out. We're going to actually talk to Lon He Chen, one of our favorite uh, political analysts later this hour. Probably not about that. You had a question yeah. for him. What was it going to be? But about uh, domestic policy. I want to talk to him about AI and how I believe that's going to displace millions and millions of people, uh, white-collar people, middle management people, analysts, et cetera, from their jobs. There's going to be massive unemployment thanks to AI. Yeah, we got a text from an elementary school teacher who says she's using it for lesson planning right now. She even had ChatGPT write a song with chord progressions to teach various mathematical strategies to students. Wow. Isn't that something? Wow. Wow. Carry the one when you have a remainder. Carry the one. Just off the top of my head. I will remain. (laughs) Nice. So, as I said previously, one of the more idiotic notions being bandied about these days is the idea that the police departments only exist because of trying to catch slaves. It's systemic racism. Good Lord. Yes, we will go ahead and expose that idea for how moronic it is once and for all. Probably not once and for all, but uh, certainly next. Armstrong and Getty. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. And recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rock the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry. Back to Iguodala. Up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
The Armstrong and Getty Show. We have a new world's oldest dog. We have a new world's oldest dog. Stay tuned. Bow wow. I'm going to have to compress this a little bit for the time we have. I uh, can't wait to talk to Lon He Chen during the next segment. But uh, Jonah Goldberg was writing about the topic, the expressed opinion that uh, this is the most racist country in the world. And the only reason we have police is to catch runaway slaves historically, etc. That notion so idiotic. I hate to expend the breath to uh, refute it. But uh, he mentions that uh, the uh, the author Seymour Martin Lipset once often said to know only one country is to know none. Meaning, if you have nothing to compare it to, you really don't know what you're looking at. Uh, Whenever you hear people talk about America as uniquely or exceptionally flawed or superior, the first question you should ask is, compared to whom? For instance, we hear a lot about how America has a murder problem, and it does. But you know where America ranks internationally on homicides? 64th. Now, in one sense, America could be number one or number 195 on the international intentional homicide rate charts. It wouldn't matter because by definition, one is too many. But, you know, and it's worth looking at, hey, country X or Y had uh, success or failure trying A or B. Uh, Let's try it, etc. But um, you need to be able to look at other places. Uh, let's see. It's also worth knowing for psychological and political reasons. Knowing lots of countries have the same problems we do should take some of the edge off your outrage about our shortcomings. Believing that our problems are unique to us is fodder for conspiratorial thinking, fuels the demonization of your political opponents, and promotes anti-Americanism because it makes us feel like our problems are somehow deliberate. If you believe no other country is racist, then every incident of racism becomes almost synonymous with American. Sure. Which gets at what Lipset was trying to communicate. He didn't say, if you know only one country, you'll know only one country. He said, you don't even know your own country. That's the problem with many of the loudest voices today. They're describing an America that doesn't actually exist. And he's talking about, then he goes into racism, which is morally obligatory to condemn. But it's just wrong, factually and morally, to say that America is uniquely racist or even especially racist. One international survey, and he goes into a great deal of detail, it's, it's good, it's solid, um, says we're not the most co- tolerant country in the world, but we're closer than if you'd, if you'd think, I'm sorry, closer than you'd think if you just read a lot of the stuff in the Atlantic or the New York Times or followed debates on TV. For instance, uh, 3% of Americans say they object to racially different neighbors, 3%. That makes us half as racist as Finland. Roughly a quarter as racist as Spain and Italy, and slightly less racist than Germany or France. You can argue that such surveys don't account for certain things, uh, blah, blah, blah. But surely the idea that America is irredeemably racist and more racist than anybody else is just factually wrong. Then he gets into the cockamamie idea. That's a great word, and I should use it more often. Uh, That not just American policing, but policing is inherently racist because policing was invented to catch fugitive slaves. And Atlantic contributor Jamel Hill tweeted that very thing the other day. If I had time, I'd read you the tweet, but I don't really. But she said police history is rooted in the slave catching and specifically the Fugitive Slave Act. What? Here's part of the Black Lives Matter Foundation statement on the killing of Tyree Nichols. This moment affirms what we've known all along. Reform doesn't work. Incremental progress is too slow. Diversifying police department will not work, et cetera, et cetera. Police will never keep our communities safe. 
Um, it can never overcome the reality that it is a direct descendant of slave patrols. All right. What? I know. I know. A couple of things very briefly. Egyptians had police 3,000 years ago. Every society, every city-state that has advanced beyond hunter-gatherers has had policing. The Babylonian Pakudu were traveling the streets and patrolling them of Uruk before Jesus was born. The oldest modern police in Europe are the York Minster Constables, who were founded in the year 1275. There has been policing in every town, village, and hamlet in the United States of America or the colonies that preceded it since the beginning, slave states, non-slave states, decades, centuries before the Fugitive Slave Act. It is one of the stupidest ideas in circulation these days. It has nothing to do with reality. Now, were there fugitive slave patrols that became modern police forces in some places? Yeah, but the old, you know, what sits there before Jesus was born got nothing to do with that. We can talk to Lon He Chen about chat GPT, among other things, and also the world's oldest dog. We have a new one. Stay tuned. Armstrong and Getty. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. And recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray, rock the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. perspectives that we, we both have different perspectives on this but uh, I thought this was a good meeting we promised we would continue the conversation we'll see if we can get there I think at the end of the day we can find common ground Kevin we McCarthy. are not going to talk much about that are we not god I hope not 
Certainly not. It's our show, damn it. That was Kevin McCarthy who met with the president yesterday, and when something happens, we'll tell you about it. Indeed, to discuss not discussing that and actually discussing other things we'll discuss, Lon He Chen joins us. Lon He is a Dave and Diane Steffi Fellow in American Public Policy Studies at the Hoover Institution, Director of Domestic Policy Studies at Stanford University. Lon He, always great to talk to you. How are you? Good morning. Well, thank you. Great to be with you guys. Would you agree that the whole debt ceiling thing is just going to come down to when it gets close to crunch time in June, they'll figure something out? Yeah, I mean, that's my, if I had to guess, you know, I think there'll be a lot of talk and a lot of back and forth and a lot of we have a nice meeting and then posturing. And uh, this is what happened in 2011, you know, when we had our last big fiscal crisis. We sort of spent many, many months dancing around the issues. There were like three or four separate rounds of different kinds of negotiations that happened. And finally, when their backs were against the wall, President Obama and, and, the, and the Obama administration worked with uh, with House and Senate Republicans to make sure that there was an agreement to avoid default. And I presume it's going to be a similar uh, dynamic this time around. I don't see any reason why it'd be any better. I'll put it that way. I think our, our politics have only gotten more divisive, more partisan, and, and both sides, I think, are only more dug in. But it's interesting. If you look at the reaction to yesterday's meeting from both sides, it was, you know, it was they're trying to be optimistic. They're trying to be upbeat. And that tells you a little bit of something, right? Because I think it shows that there's still an effort to calm the markets, to calm those who might be jittery about the prospect that there wouldn't be an agreement. So I still have great confidence that they'll reach an agreement, but it's going to okay. be really painful now and then. Fair enough. So, uh, and we will return to domestic shores and policy in a moment or two, but we understand you've been doing some work uh, on uh, China and its aggression through the Hoover Institution. Tell us about that. Well, yeah, you know, for, for a while, we have had a number of people at Hoover who've been very focused on uh, different elements of the U.S.-China relationship and really what's become a, a competitive and, and many times adversarial relationship. And what we're seeing, of course, is that in the process of that has been the resurgence or, in, in some cases, the emergence of Taiwan as an important player in the region. And so we have a project at Hoover, for example, focused on the role of Taiwan in the Indo-Pacific region. That's something that I think is, is hugely important. If you look at the recent activity you have the U.S. military completing a deal to uh, place bases in the Philippines, which completes what they call a ring or a geostrategic ring around China to try and contain what the Chinese might do, particularly in the South China Sea via naval assets. So it's a really interesting part of the world, guys. It's a part of the world where you know my heritage is obviously from Taiwan. My parents were, were from there. And so I have a lot of personal interest in what happens out there. But it's become a lot more uh, front page news over the course of the last two years, given China's aggression in the, in the region. Well, how does that fit in with that Air Force general whose memo leaked out last week who said we're going to be at war with uh, China within whatever it was by 2025 over the subject of Taiwan? Yeah, you know, there's all these assessments regarding when we're going to see some kind of military activity over Taiwan with China. And, you know, I've, I've seen there was a, a report a couple of years ago that said we'd be headed to war in 2024. Now, this memo in 2025, I'll be honest with you guys, I'm, I'm a little more optimistic about things. I, I don't think that uh, what they would call kinetic conflict or actual conflict between military forces is imminent. I, not to say it won't ever happen. I think the likelihood that there is some kind of 
military activity between the two is reasonably high over the next, let's call it, decade to 15 years. Reasonably high. going to happen. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you'll have some kind of sparring. You know, I, I don't I don't know if it's going to be full on war. Sparring think, between the United States and China is not a minor deal, even if it's sparring. No, it's not. But it, uh, you know, I think we have to we have to be sure to distinguish that from the kind of uh, you know bigger uh, the, the 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 kinds of conflict that people imagine when they think of military conflict. I'm talking about you know some kind of of direct confrontation between. Military assets, whether at sea or in the air, I mean, I think that that's, you know, there's a reasonable probability that that happens. Uh, now, I don't think it's going to happen next year. I think China's still in the process of building up its armed forces. They, they've managed to be able to do that. And, and, and don't forget that China's coming out of a really difficult economic period now, too, with the COVID lockdowns, which literally just ended a few weeks ago in China. Right. So th- that, that country is really just reopening now. And that uh, economic toll that that the COVID shutdowns took, I, I don't think should be underestimated. Wow. Interesting. Lan He Chen of the Hoover Institution, Stanford University is on the line. Hey, uh, I want to talk a little bit. We want to talk about a little bit about uh, artificial intelligence and the chat GPT that's getting so much attention. We actually know some folks in a couple of different industries, and we've heard from listeners in industries where people are now using this. And it has eliminated the, na- the need for a lot of white-collar jobs, uh, mid-level folks, analysts, that sort of thing. I personally believe there will be millions of people unemployed because of artificial intelligence in the United States within five years. Agree, disagree, and how, what kind of effect is that going to have on policy? No, I mean, I think there are labor. We talked about this a few weeks ago. I, I really do believe that we're headed for labor displacement because of the increasing use of machine learning and artificial intelligence. I think there's actually a pretty significant debate between uh, those who follow this really closely about the extent of the displacement, just how much we're going to see. Will those jobs end up just getting eliminated or do they end up shifting to different parts of the economy? Uh, you know, is there some kind of a retraining effort? I mean, these are all policy questions. You guys asked about the policy you know, and, and it's like, how do you as a policymaker, if you're looking at this from Congress or let's say from the administration, like what do you actually do to stop what is the natural development of technology? I mean, you could try and put up barriers, artificial barriers to uh, to the use of machine learning, artificial intelligence in certain settings. You could do that, for example. Uh, you could regulate the development of these technologies a little bit more heavily. You could, uh, we talked about China with, with the goal. You're, are you talking about China? Are you talking about with the goal merely of slowing it down because it would be so disruptive? That's why I you would do so. that. I mean, really? I, I wow, that ever, that would be the first. I, would that be the first time ever in history that government policy to slow down technology because we think it would be bad? Well, I mean, there's government's actually done a number of different things in, across a, a whole host of different areas to indirectly slow technology. I don't this I don't know about being the first direct regulation, but l- let me just go back to one thing I was talking about earlier, which is you know, a lot of this technology is being developed here in the United States, but a lot's being developed outside the US too. So to the point about the US China conflict, you know, one of the concerns we have here in the US is about technology that's developed abroad in China, for example, and then brought into the United States. And then there's concern about whether that displaces native produce technology here in the U.S. And so the applications that you see in like the military context, for example, so there's a lot of machine learning uh, application in the military defense uh, context. 
we're, we're trying really hard now, policymakers are actually trying really hard to make sure that that technology is American-made and American-engineered as opposed to coming from, from across the ocean. So that, that's one area where I know policymakers are very, very in tune and very intent on doing something. But whether they're actually going to go further and, and restrict the development of a, a technology, that I don't know. But I do think that there are some people who are saying, hey, wait a second, we need to take a careful look at what this is doing to labor markets and to the state of our economy. Yeah, I think it's going to be so fast and so disruptive, it's going to be like an earthquake. But I guess we'll, we'll all find out together. Do we understand that you've come on the Armstrong and Getty show today to announce that you're running for the U.S. Senate for Dianne Feinstein's seat? That is that is absolutely 100% untrue. Wow. Fake I, I news! Was, fake I was, news! I was misinformed. <laughs> so we talked uh, uh, we no. talked last week about how you got you got more votes in the midterms than any other Republican in the country, including uh, DeSantis in Florida. I mean, that's absolutely stunning. Unfortunately, you lost. But so, yeah. is there a reason why you don't want to be the senator from California? Well, I, you know, first of all, I think you have to understand that it's it's going to be a very, very challenging race because, I, first of all, I think federal races are inherently a little bit more challenging at the statewide level than than state races are. And what I mean by that is I think so much more of the national politics. I mean, don't forget, 2024 is going to be a, a presidential election year. Right. And the presidential politics are really going to dominate what happens in our Senate race. And, you know, even in a midterm year where Donald Trump wasn't on the ballot, that's all Democrats ever want to talk about is Donald Trump. And you imagine how it's going to be in 2024 for, for the Senate seat. Right. So I think that's one thing. Is that I don't think the political dynamic is particularly favorable. The, the other issue is really, you know, I mean, it's uh, it's it's tough to imagine how you can be competitive as a Republican in this kind of an office, this kind of a race without just a massive campaign war chest. And it's one that takes years and years to build. Mm. And I think, I, I just think it's not, it's not credible. Now, I, look, I, could someone come along and decide they wanted to run and they put, you know, a lot of their own personal resources into the race to make it competitive? I think that's one way you could see the race becoming more competitive. But it's, it's hard, guys. It's really, really hard to envision doing it. And then the, the practical reality is, you know, campaigns are, are, are tiring and, you know, you got to really have something in you to go. And after you've just run statewide, go, go out again and, and do it, you know, so soon after. So I, I just need a little bit of a time, a time away, I think from, from this, but I hope. Well, Lon, he, Lon, he, Lon, he, to that second point, America needs you to your first point about the <laughs> fundraising. Jack and I are willing to pledge Two hundred and fifty dollars to your campaign to get it well, started. There you go. Does that have your attention? Mm-hmm. You know. There you go. There you go. So if you're just tuning in, Lon He Chen discussing uh, the possibility of a Senate run for Diane Feinstein's seat. <laughs> of course, he put that possibility at you zero. Guys. Would zero be correct? Your your no you was your are... your no was way more believable than most people's no's I've ever heard. I got to tell you that. Hey, well, that's the problem, right? In politics, is that you know people do this stuff and then they're like, well, right? You know, under under many circumstances, the answer would be no. <laughs> right? Or like why? At this like, time, no plan. <laughs> Why do it? Why? You know, I mean, why mess around like that? Right. If you're not going to do it, you're not going to do it. Like, right. And, and by the way, I, I hope some interesting people step up and decide to do it. I, I, I tell a lot of people, I think running for office is a great experience. I'm really glad I did it. 
Uh, it's not for everybody, of course, but we need good people to step up have, and run, and I hope someone does. Have powerful people contacted you and like tried to nudge you in that direction? I mean, people have called and asked if, if I would consider it, if it's something I'm thinking about. And I've been very clear with them, which is why those calls have stopped. <laughs> wow! So you're not you haven't even like you're not even like ruminating on it. No, I mean I think if if one were going to do it, right? I mean, what are we in now? We're in, we're in February of 23. The primary is a year away. I mean that's not that much time poli- in mm-hmm. in political life. So if you're going to do it, you better be on it like soon. I okay, mean, look so at the Democrats, these guys are tripping over themselves already to run. Right. Yeah, that's true. So the oppo research we've heard so much about in a state uh, like a Senate race, how thorough is that? I mean, like I may or may not have stolen some animals from the Dallas Zoo. I don't recall specifically. I'd been drinking. Um, Do they really dig deep into your life for a Senate race? Uh, Well, I think in the case of the Democrats who are running against each other, they're going to be all over one another. And I do think that they will. They, they will look very deeply into the backgrounds, and I think a lot of that is legitimate. You know, I mean, any responsible candidate who wants to run for an office needs to understand both their own vulnerabilities as well as the vulnerabilities of their opponents. Hmm. And, and, you know, it's, it's amazing to me how many people in politics, like, ignore these deeply flawed elements of their personal background. Right. And it's like, oh, that's okay. I mean, look at Santos is a great example, right? I mean, is it th- this guy, it's like, I mean, you talk about a pathological liar. I mean, you, the definition oh, yeah. of a pathological liar is someone who lies for, like, no good reason. That lies about everything, right? And he won. And, and it's yeah. in his background. And he won, exactly. So I, I just think, yes, opposition research is a responsible part of what any campaign will do. And by the way, not just on their opponents, but on, on the candidates themselves. You need to be right. willing you know what? We to, need to, f- to know. We- we need to follow up on that, Lonnie, and I apologize for breaking in, but we need to get to uh, volleyball practice, um, and we need to take a break. Lonnie Chen of the Hoover Institution <laughs> and Stanford University. Uh, Lonnie, great to talk to you. Thanks a million. Take care, guys. So, as you saw, Lonnie Chen not closing the door. On the ep- <laughs> More to come. Stay with us. Armstrong and Getty. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. And recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rock the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry. Back to Iguodala. Up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, 
both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Republican who got more votes than anybody in the entire country in this past election, Lon Hee Chen, even more than DeSantis, which is really quite a stunning number, and uh, no interest in running for Dianne Feinstein's empty seat. I mean, you could hear it in his voice. It wasn't the words, you know, as to me, as much as just the tone was clearly, no, no. It's like Mitch Daniels, the guy from Indiana, he was former governor or whatever. They're talking about him running for president or whatever, and he's a no. In this environment, the way politics is currently, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't any, yeah. he leaves the door open. You know, no, it was like, no, are you freaking kidding? Sounds like taking a beating. No, and, and thank then the, you. And then the whole putting your family through it under, you know, it would seem that plenty of politicians, they're just so hungry for the office and getting to have that power. They, they don't even think about their, their wife usually or husband and kids. Um, but some people do. <laughs> some people don't want to spend the next year and a half or however long working 90 hour weeks never at home when you got kids school age kids a lot of people don't want to do that yeah old uh, ron DeSantis has a couple of cute little kids yeah. elementary school age so yeah that'd be a tough thing for him just two weeks ago it was announced that spike a chihuahua from ohio was the world's oldest living dog according to the guinness book of world records hmm. spike the chihuahua from ohio seems like a, a story song that jim croce could have written <laughs> Back in the 70s. <laughs> anyway, it didn't last long. Guinness Book of Records discovered another older dog in Portugal that has broken the record. Bobby. Mm. Is a ba- Bobby a Chihuahua? No, and not just the oldest living dog. Oldest dog ever, they think. It looks like a lab or a lab mix. Maybe it says here later in the story. I just read the part about the age. Um, the previous oldest dog ever was an Australian cattle dog. I have one of those. It was absolutely fantastic. Big Z. Uh, Bluey, who lived to be 29 years and five months old. Great, Scott. Come on. Really? Well, Bobby, the current oldest living dog, is, they think, the oldest dog ever. They have confirmed the birth date with a veterinary uh, medical service because they they got records. You know, it's a modern world, a modern place. They got vet records and stuff like that. And this dog is 30 years old, almost 31, 30 years Come and 266 on. days. A 30-year-old no, freaking it. lab. No, it's the second one. It's the kid of the, the first one that got the records there at the, uh, the vet. 30-year-old dog? It's an old-looking dog. I mean, it's kind of hunched over and looking like, man, I just kids these days, puppies these days. <laughs> and just When I was a puppy, nope, 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 nope. You had to throw the ball yourself. All they do is wag their tail and eat. Yeah, I had to work for my supper. <laughs> wow, that's an old blanking dog. I love, uh, I've loved many dogs that I've had. I haven't loved every dog I've had, but I've loved many of the dogs I've had. And um, uh, you don't think that you're going to be taking care of them for 30 friggin' years. Yeah, honey, if you're listening at home, turn the radio down. The idea of Baxter being around for another two decades? Bah. Right, That's if not you what got, I signed up for. Well, exactly. <laughs> if you got, you know, plans at some point, you want to travel or whatever it is you're going to do. 
Yeah. Plans that I ignored when we adopted him. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Oh, boy. Yes. Well, that is an old dog, Jack. Bye, golly. That is an OFD is what that is right there. Yeah. Well, how about a parrot? You get a parrot and your grandchildren have got to take care of the dang thing. Thanks, Dad. They'll say to you on your deathbed there at the hospital. Thanks for the parrot, Dad. I always wanted to be a parrot owner. I guess. Oh, don't worry. The thing shouldn't live more than another 50, 60 years. What? (laughs) Right. We do four hours of this show. If you ever miss an hour, you can get it in podcast form wherever your podcast is called Armstrong and Getty On Demand. Very popular. Very popular. And then, of course, we do the One More Thing podcast five days a week, which is bonus uh, stuff you never hear on the air. That's Armstrong and Getty. One More Thing. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers.